You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. Today, we're sitting down with John Farragon to talk about the NIH guidelines for outpatient management of COVID-19. Thanks, as always, for being here, John. Yeah, thanks, Mariana. I appreciate the opportunity to be here again. So, John, why are we talking about this today? How have these guidelines changed with the onset of the Omicron variant? Yeah, so what I thought I would do is just, you know, um, talk about a quick overview of the summary of the NIH COVID guidelines. We haven't talked about these in a while. They have changed a couple of times. They changed quite a bit. Um, But this section is really just kind of focusing on the outpatient management for SARS-CoV-2 infections. So um, we've covered a little bit of this in the past, like the individual drugs, but I think now there's a lot of options for outpatient management. So before, you know, previously we spent a lot of time talking about the inpatient management was, you know, with remdesivir and decadron and other products. Uh, but clearly now we have some other options for outpatient use. And I wanted to take some time and just review what these, what the guidelines, the NIH guidelines are saying on how to utilize these therapies. Um, so just to be kind of clear on everything, prior to mid-December of, uh, this, this would be mid-December, 2021, um, the anti-SARS-CoV-2 monoclonal antibodies, um, it was uh, BAM-Lenivimab plus Etisevimab, so BAM-Eti is what I usually call it, um, Casirivimab plus Indevimab, so that's Cassi and Indevi. And then we had um, Citrovimab were the only therapies recommended for non-hospitalized patients with mild to moderate COVID-19. And it's, you know, obviously for those patients who are high risk of progressing to severe disease. So um, it sounds like there's five five drugs, but it's really only three products. Bam, Eti, Bam and Eti is used together. Cassian and Devimab is used together. And then Citrovimab is used alone. So there's really three treatment options of those medications that I just mentioned. And these are all, um, you know, SARS-CoV-2 monoclonal antibodies. However, um, what what happened was if you look at the Omicron variant, so many of us are aware of this Omicron variant that's been circulating, and we're certainly on the very much on the tail end of it now. Um, uh, the the susceptibility to BAM, Etsy, and Cassie and Devimab um, against Omicron was dramatically reduced, and and so what happened was just in the last few weeks, the FDA actually we re- actually revoked the emergency use authorizations for these two combinations because. 
clearly 100%, if, if not close to 99.9% of the variants that were out there, that are really out there even right now today, are Omicron. Um, and because of that, you know, the, uh, because the BAM, ETI, and the Cassie and Devermab don't work against Omicron effectively, the FDA re, um, took out those EUAs and revoked them. So because really right now, really the only drug that actually works from a monoclonal antibody standpoint is citrovimab, um, and that's available with activity against Omicron. And the guidelines also, um, in addition to the citrovimab, they also added, there's a new, another short course, three-day IV uh, remdesivir therapy as another option for, for, for this group of patients. So right now, really what you have, at least from a monoclonal antibody standpoint, is just citrovimab. And then you have, um, then you have remdesivir as, as a three-day treatment option for, for some patients. Um, in late December, um, they, the, uh, the FDA also issued a couple of EUAs that uh, for two oral medications, and we've talked about these before, it's ritonavir boosted on your matchavir, which is, which is the Paxlovid, and then you have monopiravir. And again, these we've covered in detail in previous podcasts, and I, and I won't spend a, a lot of time about them, but these are, these are kind, of the, kind of the highlights of some of the changes that have recently occurred. So what do the guidelines say about the use of these medications? Yeah, so... So what's nice about the guidelines is that they actually provide um, some really good guidance on the use of, uh, of, of, one, of one of these basically four options, ritonavir boosted uh, near maxlovir, uh, citrovimab, remdesivir, or monopiravir. And again, this would all be for a treatment of non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19, again, for those who are at high risk of progressing to severe disease. Um, you know, a number of, fact, of factors affect the selection of the best treatment option for a specific patient, but it includes the clinical efficacy of the treatment option, you know, whether um, the drug's available, uh, and then feasibility of administering the parental medications. For example, citrovimab or remdesivir have to be given it probably most likely in an infusion center. Um, and then the potential for severe um, significant drug interactions, for example, the, with using ritonavir boosted uh, nermatchlovir also plays a role in what we're thinking about. And then out of all the drugs, at least they're not cross-study comparisons, but it appears that Monopiravir probably has some of the kind of the weakest data. And again, I'm going to say it in a bad way, but it's really kind of true. The data has, you know, isn't isn't as good for, for I don't think, for, for monopiravir. So I think all of these anti-SARS-CoV-2 therapeutics, while they provide some benefit for non-hospitalized patients, you have to really kind of defi- undecide on, on which patients should get which, uh, which, which medications. And I think that's really the most important part. So should one medication be used over another? Yeah, so this is actually what's really helpful with the guidelines. So what they did was, for at least for the NIH guidelines, they they actually had order of um, order of preference um, uh, for for these drugs. So the first order of preference, the first drug which um, uh, is recommended, is going to be nirmatrelvir, three hundred milligrams with ritonavir, one hundred milligrams. Again, this is an oral treatment that's taken uh, twice daily for five days, and you would start that as soon as possible. And within five days of symptom onset, for those people who are over 12 and who are weighing at least 40 kilograms. So that's important for that drug. You have to be over 12. You have to weigh at least 40 kilograms, which is roughly roughly about 80 to 90 pounds. So um, ritonavir boosted, rematulavir though has significant drug interactions. And I think that's really the, the biggest concern about using them because of the ritonavir uh, component. So again, we, we've, we've talked about this before, I think twice, not just in that we've talked, we had one um, we had one podcast on just kind of the overview of the data. And we had a second one separately just on drug interaction. So I, can, I, I, I encourage you to take a look at that or take a listen to that if you want to hear more about this. But really, drug interactions are, are key 
and clinicians really should carefully review the patient's concomitant medications to make sure that um, they're not missing any drug interactions. And that includes over-the-counter uh, and also herbal supplements for that potential for drug-drug interactions. So the next on the list is atrovimab. So this is a monoclonal antibody, 500 milligrams, single IV infusion. Again, this also would be administered as soon as possible. And this is within 10 days of symptom onset. And again, in those people over age 12 years old and weighing greater than 40 kilograms. And the, you know, so trovimab, because uh, Omicron has really become the dominant variant and real-time testing um, to identify the rare non-Omicron variants is not routinely available. You know, we, we're avoiding the use of, of the BAM, ATI, and the CASI and Devermab, which I've mentioned already. So trovimab has also got to be administered in a setting where severe hypersensitivity reactions such as anaphylaxis can be managed. These are very, very rare. But again, that's why I think most people probably would wind up doing this in an inpatient setting when I say inpatient setting, an inpatient like uh, outpatient, like an infusion center setting, some people may be able to do this in the ER and just get the drug and leave. It depends on where you are and how you're doing it. We have an infusion center at our center, and that's how we're we're managing it. But again, the patient should be monitored during the infusion and then observed for at least an hour after the infusion. Um, third on the list, actually above molnupiravir, is actually remdesivir. So this is the 200 milligram load on day one, followed by remdesivir. 100 milligrams IV on days two and three. When they're in the hospital, we actually give five days. We do it for a 200 milligram load than 100 milligrams a day for four days, total of five treatments. And again, for but for the outpatient use, it's 100, 200 milligrams once and then 100 milligrams once a day for two more days. Um, so again, a three-day treatment initiated as soon as possible within seven days of symptom onset. And, and again, for those who are over 12 and at least 40 kilograms. Um, I think because um, the remdesivir requires three consecutive days, it is a little bit challenging logistically. So some infusion centers may not be doing this just because of, of staffing issues as well. And there's also constraints to administering this in, in many studies because it is a, a three-day three day infusion. When I say three-day infusion, it's basically you have to go in every single day for roughly for like an hour or two but by the time you get set up and get the IV in and everything else. So remdesivir really should be administered again in a place where hypersensitivity reactions you know, can also be managed um, and they should be monitored during the infusion and observed at least for an hour afterwards. So again, very similar to what we do with citrovimab. And then finally, the fourth thing here is the molnupiravir. Again, this is a, a 800 milligram orally twice daily for five days. And again, this would be done as soon as possible within five days of symptom onset. For those who aged 18 years only, uh, and none of the uh, above options can be used. So this is really important that um, if the other three options are available, then you use molnupiravir. So the FDA EUA states that molnupiravir is not recommended for use in pregnant patients. And there are some concerns about potential fetal toxicity observed during animal studies. So be aware of that. And I think that's an important kind of caveat these, all these drugs haven't really been studied extensively in pregnancy, but for molnupiravir, because of how it works, there is a concern for fetal toxicity. Um, when other therapies are not available, pregnant people with COVID-19, if they're definitely at high risk of progressing to severe disease, may reasonably choose this option, however, um, after being fully informed of the risks, particularly those who are uh, beyond the time of uh, embry embryogenesis, for example, if, or if you're beyond 10 weeks gestation, this may be less of a problem. Um, there's no data on the use of molnupiravir in patients who have received COVID-19 vaccines, and the risk-to-benefit ratio is really unknown. Um, it's likely to be less favorable because of the lower efficacy of this drug, so it's hard, hard to know exactly what to tell people. Um, the one thing I want to just make sure everybody's clear on is that I think we've spent a lot of time talking about vaccines, right? So when we talk about COVID-19, we talk a lot about vaccines. You don't hear 
I don't think you don't hear enough about the treatments. These drugs are really effective. And I think um, and particularly the, the nermatrovir, ritonavir combination um, looks very good from a data standpoint. And citrovimab definitely had efficacy against, uh, against, um, uh, against Omicron. So for people who may, you know, again, still not getting the vaccine, and you know, we have people out there that are like this, right? And again, I'm, I'm not of that opinion. You know, I'm clearly vaccinated. And I've got my third dose, but not everybody feels this way. So these are options for patients. If you're trying to manage people who may potentially not have vaccines, you know, this might be an option. Now, some people argue, well, why would we use these drugs in people who, who haven't gotten vaccinated? And clearly, if there's a breakthrough and you've been vaccinated and you get uh, COVID-19, you can certainly receive these as well. But this is just options for people who may really kind of be, uh, be um, you know, not or hesitant to get, to get the vaccine. And I think this is just another um, kind of guideline that helps us kind of figure out what to use and, and, and in what order and in what priority. I'm going to tell you right now, we have not been able to get the the the, uh, the nermatrovir, ritonavir. Uh, we do have citrovimab, we do have remdesivir, we do have molnupiravir. Uh, but with the first drug that's on the list, we have not been able to get. I'm sure that's going to change over time. So these are just some little things to, to, to think about. But clearly, the guidelines, I think, here are very helpful. And, and again, this is just looking for outpatient management. So if you're looking for information on that, hopefully this podcast will be helpful for you. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about the latest NIH guidelines so that providers can stay on top of the latest treatments and therapies for COVID-19 infection. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nikaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.